It is so good to see you. It's like spring is coming back, and we're coming back out of the woodworks, and we're getting to worship together. It's great uh, getting to sing together again, and, and it makes me long for the day when we're sitting closer, and the masks are off, and, and we're really going for it. Um, but boy, this is a good, uh, a good little warm-up, huh? My name's Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Incarnation, and if we haven't met before, I want to add my greeting to Sam's. If you have a copy of the Bible near you, please find our gospel reading, John chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 10. We're, we're in Lent, in the beginning of Lent, and our sermons are focused on Jesus, on these moments in John's gospel where Jesus describes himself and, and says to us, okay, here's who I am. Here's what I'm like. And there are seven of these times in John's gospel where Jesus um, ends up saying, I am, and then he has some sort of metaphor. We, we started on Ash Wednesday where Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, verse 35. And then last Sunday, the first Sunday of Lent, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then this morning, we come to John chapter 10, the third time in John's gospel where Jesus stands up and makes an I am statement, I am, and then explains himself. And in, in John chapter 10, basically what's going on is in the first uh, five verses, Jesus tells a riddle a parable, a story. Now, that was a very popular way of speaking in that day and age. Um, and people loved it. And the harder the riddle, the, the more they really dug it. It's sort of like some of my kids in horror movies. They like these things. And if it scares them, they like it even better. I hate them. I think they're terrible. I don't recommend them. I don't know what kind of parent would let their kids watch them. Um, so some of my children go and watch them with Courtney Veerman because she's that kind of parent. I'm not. And, um, and they, they really feel great about it when it scares them. Well, back in the day, if you were doing public speaking and you did a good riddle, people were like, oh, yeah, I don't get it. And so that's exactly what happens in verse 6, right? They didn't get it, which was sort of like they got scared. It means success. Everybody was like, all right, that's what we like. Now bring it. Like, let's think about this together. And so then in verses 7 through 10, Jesus takes one part of the riddle. So the riddle was about sheep and gates and robbers and uh, shepherds. And in verses 7 through 10, Jesus takes the gate and he explains what he means by it. And then in verses 11 through 18, he takes the shepherd and explains what he means by it. Then in verses 19 through 21, they all get mad at him because they don't like what he means by it. And then in verses 22 to 30, he takes the sheep and he explains what he means by that. All right, so this week we're going to take the first of those, the gate. Uh, next week we'll, we'll deal with the second of those where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. So this week he talks about, in, in John chapter 10, in verse 9, notice he talks about the gate or the door. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
All right, so here Jesus is talking about himself. He's trying to teach the world who he is and what he's like. And, and, he, and he uses the metaphor of this door to the sheep pen. And he says, look, I'm the door. And then he tells us that he means two things by that. The first he means by that is I'm the door to safety. Notice John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Saved from what? Well, all the bad things that happen to sheep when they're out there on their own. He, if, you, if you want safety, you've got to come through me. Remember, he's telling a parable about sheep and robbers and thieves and all that stuff. And the first thing he wants us to know is that if, if you really want to know who Jesus is, remember, he's a door to safety. The second thing he tells us is in the rest of verse 9. Notice he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Now that phrase, go in and out and find pasture, that was kind of a, like a, a colloquialism, a euphemism. It was a slogan that everybody listening to Jesus would have immediate loan, immediately have known he's talking about the good life. I mean, that's a good life for a sheep. They got safety. They get to go out and munch around in some good pasture. Then they get to come back in. And so because they were a shepherding culture, go in and out and find pasture, was their way of saying a really good life. So the second thing Jesus wants us to see about himself, not only is he the door to safety, he is the door to satisfaction. So for the rest of the sermon, we're going to take these two parts of the riddle and do what you're supposed to do with them. Hold them for a minute and turn them and look at them and, and see how they're not just one little thing. Oh, okay, he's about safety. But this is a door into a whole world of, of who Jesus is and what he's like. So let's start with the first one. I am the door to safety, the door to protection. I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved. All right, so think about this for a minute. Jesus, this is God who took on flesh 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, talking to a culture that is all about shepherding. He's talking to people who were very familiar with the scene he was constructing in their imagination. They would have immediately known this is about a, a shepherd in the desert at night who's herded his sheep into an enclosure with walls that either backed up to a cliff face or backed up to the wall of a canyon. This was for the safety of the sheep, so that the sheep wouldn't become prey to the, the wild animals or the thieves. They would be, and there would be one small doorway into this enclosure. And, and the shepherd would do one of two things. He would either gather up a lot of uh, dry thorns and pack out the doorway after the sheep were in with that. That was an effective barrier. Or if he didn't have access to such, he would stand sentry in that doorway through the night. So Jesus is making the point that the only way to safety in this life is to put yourself under his protection. Have you done that? See, this isn't history class. We're not just here to try to learn a little data. Have you done that? Have you placed yourself 
under Jesus' protection. Because if you do, this is a promise. He is promising you that if you put yourself under his protection, you will be rescued. You'll be kept safe. When I was in the hospital this summer, suffering from the coronavirus in ICU and death was a possibility, I promise you, there were these moments where I woke up and the first thought on my mind was, I might be about to die. Okay. And I went back to sleep. And it was no big deal. It wasn't. There was no fear. None. Now, thinking about it now, (laughs) it's kind of scary. I'm walking with a family in our church right now. And Karen Gazelle, she's in the last moments. It's a scary thing to be next to death. Now, why wasn't I afraid? Well, was it the drugs? It wasn't. It was Jesus. He was with me. He took away from my vain imagination fear. If you place yourself under his protection, he will protect you. You are vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. None of, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that none of us are all powerful. There are serious threats in this world to you, to your well-being, to your mental health, to your heart, to your mind. Psalm 18 verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I I am saved from my enemies. That's true. Put yourself under his protection and he will be your protection. That's what he offers to each one of us individually, not just to the church as a whole, not just to a family, but to you. He offers this to every single one of this. Have you placed yourself under his protection? He is so mighty. To save. Now, as if that wasn't enough alone in and of itself, not only is Jesus the door to protection, to rescue, to save, he's also what says next in that verse the door to plenty. The door to the full life, a life overflowing with goodness and joy and satisfaction. That's the last half of verse 9. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And, I mean, that's enough. And will go in and out and find pasture. Again, Jesus was talking to people who would have immediately understood this phrase is a description of the good life. It's a promise of a full life. A life that's overflowing with satisfaction and meaning and joy and fulfillment. Because we're hungry people. And God alone satisfies the hungers of our hearts. Only God can. This life can be difficult. And in this difficult life, we go about our days burying our parents, terrified for our children, bent on destroying themselves, facing death and loneliness and loss, haunted by doubts and carrying any number of secret burdens and sins that we long to confess. And Jesus offers us a home. That's what he's offering here. He's a door home. 
God made us for himself. And we will be restless until we rest in Jesus. Jesus is the door back into the garden, back to the life the way it was supposed to be. Jesus is your one and only true home. So many doors we push on, so many doors we pass through don't lead us to home. They promise us home, but they don't. They open up into places of destruction and isolation and selfishness. We live storm-tossed in the sea of this world, longing for a home. And in this passage of Scripture, listen with me and hear the promise of grace. Whatever doors you've opened, it's okay. Jesus still offers you the way home. There is no land so far that Jesus doesn't offer you back home. There is no door you've gone through that Jesus doesn't offer you himself. He offers you a door back home, back to the dinner table, back to using the good gifts of this world to enjoy our creator rather than using the gifts of this world to bring some sort of ultimate satisfaction, which never works. It always ends in hunger. He offers you a door back to safety, back to plenty, back to joy and satisfaction. But it's not only about coming in, coming home. Notice it also says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and come out. And find pasture. In other words, Jesus is not only a door to safety. He's not only a door to satisfaction. He's also the door back out into the world. From the safety and joy of people who have a good home. Where they're known and loved we suddenly find the courage and the ability to go back out into this world, out into this good but broken and being redeemed world. Listen again to verse three, John chapter 10, verse three. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Out where? Out into the world. Out into the culture out into the community. How does Jesus lead his people out into the world, into the culture? Through your work, through your job. Wherever your job is located in all the domains of of culture, that is the part of the world God has led you into. You're a student. That is the part of the world God leads you. That is your vocation. You're a homemaker. How does God care for homes in this world? Through homemakers. You work in finance. How does God care for money and economics in this world? Through financial planners. You're in retail sales. How does God, whatever place in this world you work in, that is your calling. 
That is the good shepherd calling you by name, leading you out into his good but broken world. Mental health professionals, artists, teachers, lawyers, and doctors, businessmen and women, your job is God's leading into the world to use your gifts and talents to build this world up. And if you will place yourself under the care of Jesus, he will take you and he will go with you And he will be with you in your work. Not just to be an honest person at your work. Not just to shine the light of evangelism at your work. He will take you into your work so that your work can flourish. How does God teach children how to read? Through teachers. All of us are in holy orders. Nobody is waking up tomorrow and and going into a secular place. All of us are full-time missionaries. God, there is not a single square inch of the culture of this city. There is not a single thing in this city that God doesn't care about. That God doesn't want to redeem. There is nothing in this city, no domain, not the zoning commission, not the history commission, Classes, not not literature, not recreation and sports, not leisure. There is no domain of this city that Jesus did not die for. And who are the missionaries in all of these places? It is the church. We come together on Sunday. This is like the medic tent. Behind the front lines of the war. Where for just a moment we step out of the world. And we receive grace. And we experience the warmth of the body. And our wounds are healed. And we wake up tomorrow, all of us as full-time missionaries, going back to our places of work. Because Jesus is leading us, every one of us, by name, out into the world. And so we should prayerfully and courageously identify the ways that our particular vocation is broken and not working well. And we, the Christians of this city, should be going into all those places and doing the very best work because our captain is leading us. Jesus is the door into the world. The sheep hear his voice. He calls them by name and he leads them out. Now this is the abundant life. Isn't this a great life? Safety and security at home where you're known and you're named and you're loved and led by your creator out into the world to work that's meaningful? Doesn't that add up to an abundant life? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want rest and safety and meaning and satisfaction? This is the abundant life. That's what Jesus means in verse 10 when he says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A rich life, an overflowing life. These days we too often think of Jesus as trying to limit us. Slapping our hands when we reach into the cookie jar. But Jesus, he's not like that. He doesn't want to give you just enough. He wants to give you plenty. He wants you to have abundance, a full life, a life filled with satisfaction and meaning and depth, a life that truly over, that over, he's not stingy. He's not mean. Jesus isn't trying to hold us back. Look, when we pray in, in the prayer Jesus taught us, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our 
daily bread. Look, that does not mean give me just enough for today. Bread, please. That's not what that means. Is there a place for contentment and simplicity? Yeah, but there is no place for it in the Lord's Prayer. That is not what that phrase means. That phrase means give me today, Jesus, the bread I need to live the life you've called me to. Jesus, today, I got this going on at work. I got this going on in my family. Jesus, you've called me to this, and it is overwhelming. And if you don't give me what I need to make it today, I can't be the person you made me to be. I can't do the job you made me to do. So please, today, give me what I need to be what you made me to be, to do what you called me to do. And it's not about just enough. It's about everything I need to pull off this life in a victorious way. Jesus, he wants to give us the abundant life. But not only now, here, right now, in this life we're living now, in the Gospel of John, when he talks about the abundant life, he's not only talking about life now, he's talking about life after death. In John's Gospel, it's about life after death. That's part of what Jesus means when he talks about the abundant life. Or in John 3.16, everlasting life. He's talking about a life that is more than the small life forced on us by a scientific view of the world that insists this is all there is. Jesus is the door to the rich and abundant life now and after death. When we rest in heaven... And we see our beloved Savior face to face. And then beyond heaven, when the Father once again creates all things new, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth and a renewed Shenandoah Valley, and and this old, tired, death-infected world is purified, and the dwelling of God is here in the valley with us and he dwells here on this renewed earth with us and we will be his people and he himself will be with us and he will wipe away every tear from our wouldn't this is such a great place to live but can you imagine living here when death is not here when suffering is not here Won't it be wonderful to get to live in such an amazing place? We will live life full of life without any vestige of death. No mourning, no crying, no pain. All of that will be gone forever. Don't you want to experience life after death, real life without any pain or suffering? Life where the blues are bluer and the greens are greener and the glory of God fills the earth like water, covers the sea, and we see him face to face. Jesus is the door to everlasting life. And all the other doors lead to death. Listen again to John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There are other doors. Too often we try to live our lives with God on the margins. We either forget him entirely. Our secular age has tricked us, so many of us, into believing that Jesus isn't God, that heaven isn't real, that this is all you got, the stuff you can see and feel and taste and touch. Or some of us, we believe in him and yet we go about our days like he's a subject at school. 
We check in for class on Sunday mornings. We learn something. Then the bell rings and we move on. But when it comes to the problems of our country and our city, we think the truth will save us or love will fix it. The truth will not save us. America's problem is not education. It's not intelligence. We're very smart. We have done remarkable things. Love will not save us. Truth will not save us. We think we can think our way out of our problems in America. Analysis won't save us. Only the grace of God will save us. What are you leaning on? What are you looking to? Have you inadvertently put your trust in knowledge? In hard work? In intelligence? In kindness? In love? Our city is filled with kind people and it is broken. The Democratic Party is filled with smart, kind people, and it is broken. The Republican Party is filled with smart and kind people, and it is broken. Your workplace has plenty of smart and kind people, and it's broken. The history of our world is littered with examples of people who tried to go through doors that promised life with the Hitlers and the Stalins. And Mao and Pol Pot. And only too late does the group discover that they've staked their claim with a tyrant who blatantly confiscates personal property. The thief comes only to steal. Who ruthlessly tramples human life. The thief comes only to kill. And who contemptuously savages all that's valuable. The thief comes only to destroy whether it's pornography or the love of money or living only for the weekend or trying to live life as if Jesus isn't the only door. There really are thieves and robbers. They have selfish motives and brutal tactics. They want to, and they will brutalize and ravage and victimize you. They want to fleece you, but Jesus, he wants to bless you, to give you life. He wants your good to guide you and to nurture you and to guard you. Drugs and nicotine and sex and eating and money and all of those doors we walk through forgetting God and thinking that the Christian faith is irrelevant. Our secular age tells us heaven is a myth. That's a lie. The myth is that real life can be found anywhere other than Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, abundant life. Life overflowing. Life at its best now and after death. Not the best life you can imagine. Better than the best life you can imagine. All of these so-called saviors. They are so inadequate to the fullness of grace experienced in friendship with Jesus. One, One last thing. I've gone round and around with this verse, verse 9, but I've skipped over one word. I am the door. If. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If. This is an invitation and you have an option. 
And your parents can't choose for you. And your friends can't choose for you. And your church can't choose for you. And you are responsible for your choice. Here is an invitation. And not everyone chooses to enter the door. Which is so sad, isn't it? Those of you who have entered the door. And you know people who refuse to. It's heartbreaking. And God created a world with freedom. Even freedom among the children of the church. And he will let you. And I think many in this room have chosen the door. But we shouldn't assume everybody has. Because you can fake everybody out. So what about you? Have you put yourself under his protection? Have you opened your heart to Jesus? Have you turned your, in faith to him? Have you committed your heart and your life to live in intimate friendship with Jesus? If not, what's holding you back? You're getting ripped off. Or maybe at some point in the past you gave your love and loyalty to Jesus, but today you wake up and you found yourself in another room. You've gone through another door. You got distracted. You got tempted. You got selfish. You got tricked. (laughs) And Jesus is forever standing here and saying, I am the door. There is no land so far away that Jesus doesn't invite you home. Let's pray.